Well, what an incredible uh, opportunity Scott and Christina have had, and uh, high five. There we go. Okay, I hit it. I, <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you again. Let's give them one more round of applause. Scott and Christina McIntyre, thank you so very much. And you look at that life in that video, and I hope you didn't see you know, somebody in there that you're going, boy, that's way beyond me. And in a very real sense, as I was watching that video, that's kind of all of our stories. We all have a purpose. We all have a hope that we put our faith and trust in, and we have one life to live. And Scott and Christina are on a journey like you and I are on a journey, and that journey is wrought with highs and lows and all kinds of different challenges. And so I hope as we spend a few minutes together in the Word of God that you know that your life has value, because God said it has value. He created you, His fingerprints are all over you, and He's given you a purpose. He put you into this time and this space for one life. In Acts 13.36, it says that King David, after he'd fulfilled the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. After he'd fulfilled the purposes of God, and God has a purpose for us. What a great thing to think about as we come into a new year, as we reflect back on last year. I don't know if you're thinking New Year's resolutions. I always think about it for about two minutes. And uh, I know that I'm going to eat more ketchup potato chips and more Tim Hortons because i got to get it all in on one day when I'm here, because they don't have it in the U.S. So pray for the Americans down there. And uh, I don't know why I defected down there to go, I'm missing my chips and I'm missing my Tim Hortons, but I am getting my full here, and I want to thank you for sharing that uh, with me. Well, uh, maybe you've got a, a drive or a desire in your resolution to um, do some things differently. I, I think when I'm in church, I think of Spiritual things, like maybe I want to learn to pray a little bit more. Anybody feel like that's a good resolution? I'm going to learn to pray more. We should pray more. Or maybe we should get the pastor to pray more for us because, uh, because they're closer to God. That's not true, but, but we think about things like that. And the reason I mentioned prayer is because I want to spend a few minutes with us today talking about a very, very important prayer in John chapter 17. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 17. And we're getting an intimate look into a prayer that Jesus prays to his Father in front of his disciples. And John the Apostle captures it in this chapter 17 that we're going to look at this morning. We'll only look at about five verses because in that you're going to see so much about this prayer that will impact your life. I don't know about you in prayer, but prayer for me has always been kind of a scary thing. Maybe have you ever been intimidated by prayer? Or, or how many of you think prayer is just boring? Like, who's going to admit that, right? But seriously, I remember I had a fifth grade Sunday school teacher, Mr. Axford, and every time he prayed, I thought, why is this prayer so boring? And I, and I realized he literally prayed in the King James Version. Literally. Played in the, I thought, oh, that was interesting. And uh, I still remember prayers that I prayed as a kid. Do you remember that? I remember as a little seven-year-old boy, my parents taught me a bedtime prayer, and it went something like this. Um, now I lay me down to sleep. Do you remember that one? Remember how it goes? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And then what's the next line? Yeah, if I should die. I was seven years old praying a prayer. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to No wonder I had nightmares and therapy going like crazy here. And then my parents taught me to pray for our food, you know. Remember that one? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our... It doesn't even rhyme with good. 
good, good and food or good and food. I don't know. But also, prayer is one of those crazy things. We never feel like we do it enough. We, prayer doesn't, the Bible it doesn't empower God. It doesn't need it. But prayer is a powerful, powerful tool. Jesus is modeling it right here in John chapter 17. It's a relational tool. It's a way that we relate to God. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is looking up toward the heaven in front of his disciples. And he is praying this intimate prayer before God. And it's a powerful, powerful prayer. I want to read it for you in John 17. You can follow along the screen or if you've got your Bibles open. But it simply says this. And then I want to go back and just briefly look at each verse. And then in the time remaining, just share a couple of thoughts as we come into the new year that might help you as you relate to a living God. And I'm on that journey with you. So we begin in John 17 where Jesus, we read these words. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you. You're going to want to hang on to that. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus goes on in verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And he closes this section praying for himself by saying, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a powerful five verses that we are reading here this morning. This is part of what theologians have called the farewell discourse, right? Starts about the end of John chapter 12. You know, we didn't have chapter and verse about the 1500s. And it'll go until the end of this prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying for himself. And then if you get some time to read it later this week, I would encourage you to do so. He's going to pray for his disciples. And then at the end of this priestly prayer, as it is known, he's going to pray for you and me. He's going to pray for all future believers in verses 20 to 26. Now, if you're a good uh, Bible student, as most of you probably are, you would know that context in Scripture is so important. And, and so the verse before verse 1 is kind of pivotal. Read in John 16, Jesus says to his disciples at, at the end of his life, he's saying, in the end, or he says, I have told you all of these things in this discourse so that you may have peace in me. So Jesus says, I, I want everybody to have peace. That's a good thing. And then he says something so provocative. I think many people, religious Christian people, have glossed over this passage of Scripture, not really understanding what it's about, but I think it sets up the prayer that Jesus prays. He says to his disciples, I want you to have peace. And then he said, here on earth, you're going to have many trials and sorrows. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Another passage says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. So I don't know the people who uh, I know that reject Jesus Christ or get mad at God or, or, or leave the Christian faith. Usually it's because God didn't make their life here on earth more comfortable. Do you know people like that? Maybe you're here and that's part of your story. You're coming to church because your life is maybe a mess and you think maybe God can bring some peace. He can and he will, but it's very, very different than many of us think. He reminds us right here in John 16, that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fragile world. We live in a very temporary, finite world, and it is filled with sin. And that sin is also coming from you and me. 
We're tainted by that. We'll battle that till the day we die. And so these passages in this last words that Jesus is going to say before he goes to the cross to his closest followers, they're trying to help them get an understanding of what's about to take place. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But the beautiful thing is take heart. I have overcome the world. And then Jesus will turn right in front of his disciples and lift his eyes and probably his hands the way the Jews would pray and begin to pray this prayer to his Father in heaven. And what's he getting at? You see the word glory over in, over in these five verses, that word glorify. We sung about it at Christmas time. Glory, right? I didn't do that very well. <clears throat> Scott, come back out here. <laughs> but we say, what is glory all about? Jesus is saying, I'm here to reveal glory. We're going to talk about that uh, for a few minutes this morning. Glory really is a lot simpler than we make it out to be. It really is reflection, radiance, like the sun. You don't know the sun. You've never felt the sun. You wouldn't survive if you felt the sun, S-U-N. But we experience the sun through its warmth and through its energy and through its power. The sun radiates this heat. The sun, S-O-N, radiates God the Father. That's what is happening here in this. So Jesus' glory is going to be consummated through his life. And the disciples are reminded of that in the way that Jesus lived his life. He is the radiance of the Father. I put up here on the screen just kind of a little outline for you to think about these five verses. I put it kind of in reverse order. You know, that what we learn in verse 5 is that Jesus existed before the foundations of the world. He was pre-existent. He was with God, asking God to restore the glory that he had before he ever came. That's an important thing for us to understand, that Jesus is eternal, that he's God the Son, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, and he is the very God himself. We worship a triune God. That's an important theology to Christians. We worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three persons existing individually, yet one God. A mystery that we won't fully grasp this side of heaven. But it's very, very powerful that we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit glorifying one another. And what happened is that Jesus was there and then he was sent from heaven. He didn't just begin in the birth of his mother Mary. He was sent from heaven by God to accomplish a mission. And he says in, in, verses, in verse 4, he accomplished that what he was sent to do. And that was the last thing in verses 2 and 3 was to give life to people. What is that all about? What does life mean? That they might know you. What does it mean to know him? I think a lot of us know religious things. I think we know about him. But what does it mean to have life eternal? I think some of us have a grasp of it. Hopefully, we can understand it in a richer way when we leave here today and go to celebrate our New Year's Eve celebrations. But it's a message about the incarnation, God becoming man. And it's one of the clearest passages on Jesus being God. What I love about these five verses is if you look into that, and again, in context, you'll see that in the greater body of Jesus' life and in these verses, you and I have been invited into this perfect relationship. The Trinity existing in perfect community, and you and I get invited into this relationship with the Trinity. Theologians have tried to describe the Trinity by using the word Trinity. They've tried to describe the relationship with a, another fancy Greek word. I didn't put it on the slides, but some of you may know it. It's a real fun word. It's parachoresis. You might recognize the word chorea, where we get our word choreography from. And so they've tried to describe how does the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to one another? Perichoretically, they make this parachute. It comes from the word chora, which means space, 
and peri, which means to move about. In other words, perichoresis is a relationship that they're trying to describe of the Father, Son, and Spirit relating, moving in and out of one another, and that they do that with each other, and miraculously they do that with us in our fallen nature. The word literally describes a kind of dance with the Spirit. So in other words, some theologians have said, God is a party waiting to happen. Don't you kind of, doesn't that kind of draw you in? He, he's not a deep chanting meditation. He is a part, he is life. He is truth. He is joy. He is hope. He is all the things that we've been celebrating and thinking about over Christmas and certainly into the new year. And we can think on those things and rest in the truth and the greatness of those and in the knowledge that we've been invited to the dance. We relate perichoretically. In essence, we dance with the Trinity. Let me back up and just go through each verse quickly, and then I want to just close with just sharing two thoughts that might challenge you in the way that you relate to a living God. So, so let's go back to verse 1. Verse 1 says this. It says, again, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, the Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. If you've read the book of John, that might be an interesting statement to reflect on because throughout the book of John, Jesus uses that phrase, except he, earlier he used it differently by saying the, the hour has not yet come. Do you remember in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Canaan Galilee where they ran out of wine? Do you remember that? And Jesus' mother comes to him in a panic and says, what are you going to do? We've, we've run out of wine. What are you going to do? You've got to do something. And he looks and he says, woman, my hour is not yet come. Now, interestingly, he does take the water and he turns it into the most incredible wine they could ever experience. And interesting, if you look at the chapter, no one really knew who did the miracle, but we saw the evidence of God beginning to happen miraculously. The glory of God was beginning to be revealed amongst the people, but his hour had not yet come. You know, in John chapter 7, his brothers are trying to urge him to go to Judea. You need to go to a place where all of this stuff can be ramped up, where you can, these miracles, these things that you're doing, you're becoming really popular. We need to maximize the, the business of what you're doing and get more people on board. And yet Jesus said the same thing in John 7, my hour has not yet come. Later in that chapter, and in chapter 8, he avoids death narrowly, simply again, by reflecting on the reality that his hour had not yet come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. That's what Jesus' life was all about, just getting ramped up his whole life. He said, I can't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. My whole life is reflecting what he's told me to teach. When Jesus was compassionate and kind and loving to all, he was revealing the Father, the character of God through the way he lived his life. The miracles and the healings that he performed, all performing or all reflecting the glory of God, the radiance of God through his life. And most of us, we understand that that would culminate in the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus laying down his life. We'll celebrate that on Good Friday and Easter for you and for me. The ultimate act of love is somebody giving their life for your life. Perfect God glorifying him. And then we go to verse 2, and it goes on to say, Jesus says, since you have given him, trying to talk in almost in third person, you've given Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life. That's powerful. You've given him authority over all. Stop and think about that for a moment. The word authority, you know what it means? 
authority, right? Authority is all power over everything. That's a guy I want to have on my fantasy team. Any fantasy football players here? Right, the season's over, right? I want that guy with those stats on my team. That's Jesus, an amazing God, authority over all. And where does his power go? He has the power to give eternal life. You know, your life is but a blip, or James says it's like a vapor. You know, especially in Canada, you see that really well, and it's cold, you see your breath, it's here for a moment, and then it's gone. That's what your life is like in terms of eternity. Those of you that are a little bit older in the crowd are starting to understand what my mother-in-law said about life. Life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. It's true, right? And, and that's our life. I'm reflecting, as David said, 32 years as a pastor. I've been going on 32 years of, of marriage as well. Just how fast it goes. And we're invited into this relationship with a perfect and holy God, not just for this life, but for eternal life. Jesus has power, authority over all, and to give eternal life. Only a crazy person wouldn't want that. It's amazing what the Bible offers you and me in this life, giving us the most plausible explanation to the origins of man. Some of the greatest minds throughout history have said that the origins, the Bible talks about our beginnings, are very historically, scientifically, they're very verifiable. They stand up. And then the Bible gives you and I our life purpose and meaning. Isn't that cool? Without Christ, you just live for Christmas gifts or Fridays or going up to the cottage on the weekends. But the Bible says you're living for Christ and committing your life to him. You have a life of purpose to be his vessel, to reflect his glory through your fallen life. God's glory through Jesus' perfect life. God's glory through your broken life. That's an awesome opportunity for us. And the Bible says you're going to find your joy in that. And as if it wasn't just the cherry on top of the proverbial Sunday, we get eternal life beyond this little blip of a life that you are currently living. Who would not want that? He goes on in verse 3 and he says, this is what eternal life is. Some of you think, well, eternal life is just signing up and praying the sinner's prayer, and boom, I got my ticket punched to heaven. You know, it's, it's deeper than that. It's richer than that. It's more dangerous than that. To understand what eternal life is, you've really got to grapple with what Jesus is saying here. He says, this is eternal life. You might want to underline that in your, your Bible if you've got it open, and that is that they know you. What does that mean that they know you? The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word to know, it's the, the Greek word gnosko. And it carries the idea of not just knowing information about somebody. It carries the idea of over time getting to know all about someone or something or building a relationship, as in a relationship between a husband and a wife. I remember when I first came to know Christ was back in 1975. I was seven years old, seven and a half, I think, to be exact. I went to Wortley Baptist Church in London, Ontario, and all I heard about when I went there was that you need Jesus. I'm like, what is that all about? You've got a sin problem. What is that all about? Hell is a real place. Okay, whoa, now you got me. I'm listening. Hell is a real place? Yeah, and there's a way out of hell. You simply pray this prayer, and you become a Christian. I'm like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> I prayed this prayer. I didn't... I, didn't want to deal with sin. I didn't want to deal with hell, and I wanted to be a Christian. So I became a Christian in 1975, and then I began to wonder, what does a Christian do? <laughs> like, have you ever been there? You're like, okay, I'm a Christian. What, is, what does that mean? So I did what any Christian would do, and I went to church. 
I'm going to go to church. And then I was like, what does a Christian do? Okay, someone gave me a Bible. I thought that was really cool. And I, so I began to read the Bible. And I began to try to pray. And then I still was wondering, what is, is that it? You just go to church, read your Bible, and pray? And most people don't even do that. You know, but that's a Christian? That's what it is? And then someone said, well, no, you'd be, you get to live like a Christian. I'm like, I don't know how a Christian lives. So I just began to look at all of you guys. I began to look at people at church and said, okay, I'm going to imitate you, not Jesus. I was just thinking, well, what do you do? Well, there's a certain way that you dress. There's certain ways that you speak, and there's certain behaviors that you have, and that's what I thought being a Christian was without really knowing why, not even thinking to ask the question why. All I knew was I was safe. On, you know, I was safe. I got my ticket punched and ready to go, but over the years, it just seemed a little stale. Have you been there? You've been there in your walk with God? It just seemed a little like there was really nothing happening. I was doing all the right things. I was studying this. I was getting to know it. But there began to be an angst in me, thinking and wondering, is this all there is? Have you been there in your walk with God? Is this it? Maybe I see people around me, they're having a lot more fun in sin. Maybe I need to go back to that. And some of you do have one foot in Christ and one foot in the world. Boy, that's a big angst because I figured out that sin was still bugging me. I figured out what sin was. It was sin was me trying to do whatever I wanted to do. Me wanting to be in control. And, it, and I thought being a Christian, that would all go away. And it never did. And I tried to figure out how to get rid of that. And I began, someone said, well, memorize scripture. So I memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. But with the temptation, he's also going to provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it or you can endure it. I memorized it. Said it over and over again like an incantation. And I still battled sin. And the years would go by and it would get really, really difficult. I tried really hard to do the right. Isn't it hard to do the right things? You get out there, okay, what do I got to do? Obey. Okay, so I okay, what do I got to obey? I started obeying God. I, I, uh, in the 80s, someone said, get a journal. Start writing in a journal. So I remember I, I lived in London, but I worked in a town outside a farm. I rode my bike as a teenager. And I would stop at Springbank Park, and right, right along the Thames River, I would open my Bible, and I would read, and I'd write some thoughts in my journal, and I'd put it away, and I'd be on my way. That's what Christians do. They write in journals. And, and then I went on a mission trip in 1984. I, I thought, I'm going to get, I took my globe and thought, what's the farthest place away from London? It was India. Spent a whole summer in 1984 in India, building hospitals and trying to experience what Christians do. Came back only to find out that I was still exhausted, that there still was something seeming to miss in all of that. Fast forward years later, I went to Chicago, I went to a Bible college. I began to really know the Bible, know my doctrine. I could debate you on eschatology and win. We could talk about theology, the roles of women in ministry, tongues and sign gifts, and we'd have robust conversations. I thought, is that what Christianity is all about, knowing more about doctrine and theology? I got married in that time frame in 1988, and I began to realize it's not easy when you're married. For my wife, it's not easy. <laughs> It's hard to share your life with somebody and then to produce offspring from that relationship. Three little guys that we had as our children were really tough to raise. And I thought, is this what Christianity is all about? And I kept working hard for God and I realized I knew almost everything you could about being a Christian and about God. I just didn't know God. Have you been there? 
I didn't gnosko God. I think what Jesus is saying, a few chapters earlier in John chapter 10, he said, you know, this is abundant life. He says, you know, the thief comes in the night to steal and destroy, but I've come to give you abundant life. I think it begins, an eternal life begins in gnosko, relating to him, having a relationship with God, not one that is full of knowledge and a bunch of to-dos, but one that is thriving because you have a real give and take relationship. Uh, why is this really important? It's a supernatural concept. It's really hard in our culture for people to think about having a relationship with something transcendent, something invisible. They had a hard time with it back then. Jesus was trying to explain to them where he was going and what was about to happen. They didn't understand. He was going to go away, and they're like, wait a minute, you said you're always going to be with us. Why are you going away now? You came and you healed. You said that you are God. You even forgave sins. We want to make you our king. And Jesus said, I am a king. It's just not the king you're thinking. I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But we want you to sit on the throne and, and kick some Roman butt and get our oppression away from us and bring us back a better life. Not a lot has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Maybe you're like me and you demand a God to sit on a throne of your life to make this life better. And that's not why he came. These concepts are supernatural and they have eternal consequences. I meet people all the time who say, well, Jesus was good. He was a moral guy. His teachings were amazing. I want to try to follow him as an example. And if that's you, I, I hate to say this, I think you're missing the entire purpose of Jesus' ministry that he came in here on earth to fulfill the mission that he came to accomplish. I talk to good Christian people to say, yeah, 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 I get the whole concept. Jesus is the eternal son of God. I know that he came to earth. That's what Christmas is all about, right? I get it. I know that he came to earth and he died for my sins. That's Good Friday. He rose again. That's Easter. I get all that. And we might understand that conceptually, but the question is, do you know and experience him as the living, pre-incarnate God? Do we know and experience him as the one who came and died as the divine forgiver of your sins. Do you know that, or you, have you just had a mental assent to that? Do you experience Jesus as he's talking about in these five verses? It's a pretty heavy one. He's talking intimately. He's talking about knowing people in such a powerful way that they relate to him and they thrive in their walk with him. So do you know him, or do you just know certain facts about him. Are you here today just because that's what good Christians do, like I did for many years. Good Christians go to church, and so I'll go to church. I want to share with you, I want to encourage you, there is just so much more. And it's such a significant difference. That little word know, gnosis, and the word know, gnosko, to know him intimately is so different. And what I learned, and don't tell anybody, I'm 53, just turned 53 last week. Don't sing happy birthday, we don't have time for it. But I will take the gifts. Um, but for years, I came alongside people as a pastor and I tried to fix people. For years, you would come into my office and I wanted to make you better. I wanted to make your life better. For years, I, I wanted to, and in my own pride and narcissism, I wanted to make you like me. And so I told jokes and you'd go, oh, wasn't he a funny pastor? He's such a good guy, and you'd leave. I fixed your problems, and you thought I was nice. And I gave you maybe four things to do, gave you a Bible verse, prayed for you, and sent you on your way out to work hard for God and be the kind of Christian I was for so many years. 
And what I've learned in the last few years is that this word of God, 66 books, it's a lot to take in. It's a powerful, powerful book. There's a lot of doctrine. There's a lot of theology in here. But it's not about knowing theology and doctrine. I went to Bible college. I know a lot of that. And I see a lot of people coming out of seminaries, see people in deep Bible studies. In fact, people often use the word, we're going for a deep study. And what they mean is, I want to learn some Greek and Hebrew. I want to learn about some of these concepts so that I can be mature in Christ. The only problem is that's not what maturity is. And we've looked at that, we've sold it, and we said, wow, if I know things, I'm close to God, and you're not. I know people who've been married for 40 and 50 years and have no clue who their spouse is because they've just lived in existence but never got to know the person, the sacrifice of being intimate. Could you imagine if that was my relationship to my wife? I know she's born on April the 6th, 1967. I know that she weighs 103 pounds. No, that's the only thing nobody knows about their wives, how much they weigh. <laughs> but I, I know that she was born in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. I know that she was raised in Southern Ohio. I know that she you know, went to Telewanda High School. I know so much about my wife. But if that was the extent of our relationship, you'd look at me and say, you are one pathetic soul. You don't know your wife. And it's the same with Christ. We know this Bible not to know about facts, but every doctrinal principle you read, every theological truth, every narrative in this Bible points to a living God. Why? Get this, so that you can relate to the living God. And so that you can take that relationship and put it on display in the way you relate to one another. Does that make sense? That's the purpose of the word of God. Knowledge is important. We need the foundational framework truth and theology. It's so important, but don't sell yourself short by stopping there. Get into the relationship of it all. Don't miss out and settle for so much less. Let's look at verse 4. We're fast running out of time. And verse 4 says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And we've talked about that. Jesus reflected, revealed God. He accomplished this work that he gave him to do. He wasn't on the cross yet, but that would fully come to fruition when he died on the cross a short few days after this discourse with his disciples. And then closing out this section of this great prayer in verse 5, it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Who has a right to say that if they're not God? Father, reflect your glory in me. Reflect me through you with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, what's, what's going on here? If you don't remember anything, remember the purpose that Jesus came to earth. The reason that he came was to reveal the Father through his perfect life. And what does that mean for you and I? Our purpose then is to reveal that same glory through our imperfect life. As I was saying a few minutes ago. I love the way the Apostle Paul describes that in Corinthians. Remember 1 Corinthians 4 where he says we are but jars of clay. We're broken vessels because we live in a sinful fallen world. But the beauty of that is a perfect and holy God perichoretically relates to us, fills us with the spirit of a living God, a treasure that then pours out of our brokenness and other people don't see our perfection. That's legalism that turns people away from God. They see Christ in us manifested in Galatians 5, and 23. You might want to write that down. Some of you know what that is. That's that famous passage that Paul wrote to the Church of Galatia on the fruit of the Spirit. Do you remember that? And I don't know about you, but back in the early days of me being a Christian and trying to figure out what a Christian meant, I looked at the fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, self-control, gentleness, all those things, as a checklist. Have you done that? 
I'm going to try to be more loving. I'm going to try to be more patient. I'm going to try to be, you know, it exhausted me. Why? Because it didn't flow out of a relationship. It flew out of my desire to do the right thing and get ahead of God. We get ahead of God when we look at the Bible as a rule book. We get ahead of God going, okay, just show me, tell me what I need to do. Are you like that in your life? Just show me what I need to do. I got this. I'm good. And if you do that without Christ, when you're without the Spirit, you're doing this on empty, and you'll be exhausted, and it won't go anywhere, and you won't reveal Christ. You reveal more of you than you would of Christ. So how do we do that? Just two things, two questions I put up here on our slides for us to think about. One is, do you know him? Do you really know him? It's one of the most haunting questions that I've ever had is, I got nervous years ago when I thought about living the Christian life in that passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus looked at some people who claimed to follow him and he said these words, you know some of it, away from me I never, I never knew you. It's that word gnosko. Away from me, we never had a relationship. Oh, they were religious people. They said, but we cast out demons in your name. We heal people in your name. Away from me, I never knew you. That's kind of haunting. I, I always ask myself, how do I stay off the pages of that scripture? And I think it's what we're talking about here. A question we all need to wrestle with. Do you know about him and you're living a religious life? Or do you know him intimately and you're growing in a relational life? Do you see the difference? It's so critical that we wrestle with this. So the question we have for us is, do we know him? Where is our hope? Maybe you can think about it this way. Why did you come to church today? Why do you come to Bayview Glen? Do you come here to feel better? Not a bad thing. Do you come here because you battle anxiety and you want that to go away? Not a bad thing. You come here because you're bored with life and this is a good place for your kids to come. The music is good and the, the passage, the pastor is really exciting and entertaining and there's places and programs. Is that why you come? And by the way, none of those things are bad. They just can't be the thing. You know, I love the way that um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, he said, if you put your faith in Christ for this life only, you, of all people, are to be pitied. There is so much more in knowing Christ, in having a relationship with Christ, in surrendering fully to him and allowing the Spirit of God perichoretically to flow through you, therefore revealing and glorifying God with your life. But it starts by truly knowing him and two subcategories under that, it's reflected in the way we relate to one another. Jesus said it best in John chapter 13, where he took his outer garments off. And remember, he put a towel in a basin, and he washed his disciples' stinking, smelly, muddy feet. And he said, a new commandment I give to you that you would, remember the words, love one another. God is glorified in the way we love one another. So we relate to God perichoretically. We get to know him intimately. And we put that on display in the way we relate. Therefore, love one another. And actually, it's another sermon for another day. But by definition, that is what worship is. Coming to church and singing, that's corporate worship together. But worship is every moment of your life, living it as a living sacrifice, laying your life down. Agape love is best defined as putting the needs of someone else and their well-being ahead of yours at any cost to you. Do you love like that? impossible without being filled by the Spirit. It's impossible if you don't know Him. Therefore, the Spirit's power comes through you, enabling you to love someone else by putting their needs ahead of your own at any cost to you. That's worship. That's glorifying God. God is glorified in the way you love, not to put on a show, 
but in the behind the scenes, in your sphere of influence, are you loving well, not to get points with God, because that never works, but because you're already right with God. And as you grow intimate with him, that glory shines stronger and stronger as revealed through your life. Do you know him? Do you glorify him? That's reflected in the way we love other people. I think some things, some of the things that get in the way is our sin. That's something we'll battle for the rest of our lives. We're gonna battle sin. And so James, I love the way James said it, consider it joy when you go through trials of various kinds, knowing the testing of your faith develops what? Do you remember the word? Perseverance. And perseverance has a purpose in your life. Perseverance does a work in you. It kind of sanctifies you. It's getting the detox of sin out of your life as you persevere through trials, reminding yourself that Jesus said this world was never going to give you what you wanted. You're going to have sorrow and trials, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And you allow the Spirit to come through in the trials. You persevere because they're detoxing you of trying to find your joy in this world. That's freeing. That's why you can consider it joy when you go through a trial because it's doing the work of putting your focus solely on eternity and being intimate with him. So we reflect God's glory in the way we love one another. We reflect his glory in the way that we persevere through trials in our lives. Let me just close by uh, an illustration that helped me understand this. I remember when I was in the second grade, it was only, I was just a few years ago, Dave, as you said, (laughs) I went to... um, Cleardale Public School in London, Ontario. And I remember the teacher in second grade had all of us students uh, sit down. I can't even do it now without putting my back up, but you'd cross your legs and put your hands on your lap. Can anybody do that here? I'm not gonna do it, okay? But just picture it. And then all the students would sit in a big, long row and they would play a game. She's gonna play a game with you. It's called telephone. You ever heard of that game, telephone? And remember what the teacher would do? She would go to the first person in line and she would whisper a phrase. To that person, and then they would turn to the next person, and they would say the phrase to them, and to the next person, till it got to the very end, and what always happened at the end? Yeah, it was all scrambled, it was all, and all the kids would giggle and laugh. Everyone in the line thought, that was so funny, can we do that again? Everybody laughed but me. I'm a competitor. I'm sitting at the end of the line, I'm going, what are you guys, second graders? They're like, yes. You can't get this? I wanted to get it right, and it was going through so many iterations of people that by the time it got to me, the message was just all scrambled, and I wanted to get it right. I thought, isn't that the way life is? We're pastors. We stand up here attempting to communicate the word of God. You're fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You have a sphere of influence that you're attempting to glorify God in your one life, but because of your sin, because of your struggles in a fallen and finite and fragile world, you have a hard and difficult time trying to translate that to your sphere of influence. But you know the beautiful thing is that God uses it anyway. And God invites you. You know how I solved the problem of the telephone game? Just spoiler alert, this is a strategy. If you play competitively, full contact, telephone game as adults. I found out that if I went from the end of the line over to the front of the line, I was closer to the original message. And I could hear it more clearly. And I could understand it better. And I could then turn and articulate it more clearly. There is a purpose in the body of Christ. There's a purpose in Bayview Glen. There's a big vision for this church. And as Dave was talking about in 2030, was it 6,000 people in small groups and being impacted? Not because we want to say we're a big church, but because we want to see people experience the joy of reflecting Christ in your life and the hope of eternity. 
There's no sales pitch. We want to invite as many people as we can to experience truth and the hope that we can have and the joy and purpose we have in our life. As you realize, you can get to the front of the line. You can get close to Christ. He wants a relationship with each one of you, not just with a man who won an American Idol, who got a kidney transplant a couple times, who now has an incredible platform to share the gospel with people across the world, but you have a life. And God said in Hebrews that the, the temple, the veil was torn, and we can come with confidence into the throne room of the king. And we can get to the front of the line, and we can spend our effort simply in our life, not trying to do good things and imitating church people, but simply getting close to Jesus so that we begin to value his presence more than anything else on the face of the earth. The Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation that anytime you put your faith and trust in the things of this world, they're always gonna disappoint you. They'll never quite deliver what you want, yet we'll be tempted to keep going there. What Jesus said is my presence in Matthew 28 will always be with you even more so when he left, he gave us his spirit, even though the disciples didn't understand it at the time. Now we have all the power of the Godhead, Peter says, dwelling within us, the power of the divine in us to live this one life intimately with God, to experience that fullness for the entire life that we live. What an opportunity you have, and your life matters. God loves you. You have value. You have a platform, but it starts from Gnosko, knowing Christ. And this order of operations is critical, knowing him and then reflecting him as you glorify him with your life. So as you come into the new year, ponder these things. Do you know him? Do you glorify him? These are Jesus' very last words that he gave, and he would die a short time after. Don't you, when someone's dying, don't you want to take your notepad out and go, okay, where's the money? <laughs> and Jesus said, I'm not going to tell you where the money is, but I'm going to tell you about a treasure that'll be worth far more than anything you can ever think or imagine. And here's the reality. His presence is that treasure. It begins now in a life-giving relationship and will continue into eternity if you've placed your faith and trust in him. And here's the reality. We simply just don't know him well enough yet to realize he's all that we need. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these great truths in this prayer that was so intimate, this prayer that was so powerful, this prayer that is so full of truth, life-giving truth, life-changing truth, impactful truth. And I pray for each person that's here at Bayview Glen this morning that we wouldn't leave here without considering, Holy Father, what is it you have for me? How does it impact my moment, my knowing of you? How does that impact my life? Not so I can go out to learn to be more obedient, but that my obedience would flow from an intimate relationship that I have with you. So, Father, as we reflect back on 2019, may we look back at our lives, celebrate where we saw the moments that you intervened, that you worked, that you showed up, that we experienced you, and may we course correct and learn from those places, Lord, where we struggled, where we wrestled, and not waste, realizing you don't waste one trial. May we not waste it either. And then, Father, as we come into 2020, may we reflect on the hope that we have, not only for this life, but for the life to come. And may the one life we live be a true reflection of someone who knows you personally and glorifies you in the way we radiate you through our life. Bless this church. Bless Bayview Glen. Bless this community. May your throne be strong and may you be glorified through it all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.